0: Welcome back to the Better Way Podcast, brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we ask, "There has to be a better way, right? There just has to be." I'm Zach Kuselia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and colleague Hui Chen. Hi, Hui.
1: Hi, Zach. Hi everybody. It's wonderful to be here now for our very last podcast of the year. Wow. I have to say I started off the year doing this pretty much for the first time and felt incredibly uncomfortable. Uh I can't say I'm entirely comfortable now but a lot better than January.
0: Definitely. I think we both feel that way. Uh it's uh, but it's been so much fun. It's been so much fun to meet all of these wonderful people who have come on as guests. It's been a lot of fun to highlight some of our friends and colleagues who have come on as guests. And obviously, as always, it's just been a lot of fun to spend an hour every couple of weeks with you, Hue to talk about things that we care about.
1: Same here. And and I really do want to give a shout out to Jeremy Miller, our producer who has been so wonderful throughout this process, who does magic with our, um, with, with our recording. And uh, thank you, Jeremy, for, for all that you, do, you and your team do for us. I also wanna give a shout out to all the people who have been listening to us. Those, you know, it, it's just so amazing when we get on a call or go to a conference, and when people you know, come up to us and say, you know, oh, I listened to your podcast and I particularly like, you know, this and that episode, you're doing some interesting and innovative things, like all those feedback, knowing that you're out there listening to uh, all the crazy things that we uh, we discuss in here. It's really, it's really been fun and it feels like we're building a community.
0: I couldn't agree more. So this is our year in review. We don't have a guest today. It's just me and you to talk about some of the amazing people that we've had on the podcast over the course of the year and some of the better ways that they've shared with us. So I say we just get right into it way. And I am going to 100% put you on the spot to go first to share your first, (laughs) your first highlight of 2023.
1: I think it would not surprise you that i I'm, I'm gonna start with the concept of embracing complexity. The first guest that really highlighted this was our colleague Dr. Caitlin Handron. and we almost kind of rounded out the year with an extensive discussion of this concept with our last podcast with alison taylor and and not to mention that there are also you know we we constantly mentioned this in between, right so The the, the idea of embracing complexity that not everything we do, it can be summarized in a Twitter message. Um, Not everything works like clockwork um, because human beings are just not made like clocks. I feel like we're doing something that's really bucking a trend that people feel drawn to for understandable reasons, right? Because precisely because the world is complex, people want to have something more straightforward to grab onto. So there is a strong tendency to just say, let's just reduce this to a formula. Let's reduce this to something that we can say in a slogan. But we find that when we do that, we really miss a lot of things. And actually, as Allison said in her in her podcast with us last episode, it's just not working, that approach. That that simple sort of tick the box, reduce everything to a formula approach, we simply see that it's not working. And so that's one of those things that just keeps coming up again and again, not just on, only in our podcast, but in our work every day, we see that. So I think that for me, is not just a sort of my top better way, but it really embraces everything we do and how we approach them. What do you think?
0: I agree. I can't tell you how many times I'm on a call with a client or we're doing a pitch or we're talking to the team and I feel myself approaching a choice in my brain between the word complicated and complex. And something signals in me, to be intentional about which of those words comes out of my mouth in recognition that they aren't the same thing and that they mean something very different. And as we've talked about, words matter. Uh, that's another one of the, uh, the the better ways that we've explored. What I really like about the conversation that we've had around this over the course of the past year is it, it doesn't mean that everything is complex. Some things can be summed up in a slogan. Some things can be summed up in that uh, you know tweet, length but some things can't and it's when we try to push those square pegs into a round hole and simplify them unnecessarily that we wind up in the world of reductionism rather than really leaning into and embracing um, the complexity that often exists in the worlds in which we operate I love that one Yeah, my first one uh, I'm pulling from the discussion that we had with Patrick McGowan who, as a reminder to folks, is a Senior Director for Global Compliance Auditing and Monitoring at Tech Innovator Fortive. Everyone loved that episode. Everyone loved our conversation with with Patrick. The thing that I took away from that, um, and that we talk also a lot about outside of the podcasts, including with, with our clients, is the power not just of data analytics, but the power of using data, to reveal insights about human behaviors. This I think is the real place that we should all be um, uh, working toward um, and, and seeking out. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of data analytics being used in the culture space and the compliance space and the DEI space, all of these spaces in which we operate. But a lot of the time it's focused on metrics that are just really dumping data on folks in ways that aren't telling a story. And what we got from our discussion with Patrick, particularly around an example that he had he had he had done at a previous job was around how in looking at t and transactions in looking at how money was being spent on meals. He was able to identify that, although the data suggested that no one was exceeding the policy limit. And that folks weren't violating the policy by not submitting receipts for meals that required receipts, which in many organizations would be enough. When you actually unpacked that data, you would see a pattern of behavior that didn't make sense. You would see a pattern of behavior that suggested that the cost of meals was either out of whack with what um, they actually should cost, or people were intentionally... Uh, Submitting their expenses right at the threshold for needing a receipt, either because they didn't want to submit a receipt or potentially something more problematic, like they were falsifying their expenses or exceeding the limits. And just a wonderful example, and there are a lot of those that we see in our work, where when you look at the data with a sort of process-based analysis or policy-based analysis, you might pat yourself on the back and think that you're compliant but when you look at it with a people based analysis you might see patterns of behavior that actually alert you to something that may not be problematic but certainly warrants additional questions and i just love that
1: patrick like so many of our guests um is someone that who just stimulates me every time we, i have a conversation with him he you know does things that are um innovative and and deeply thoughtful and makes me think about things so you're better way here is basically my next better way. Okay. Um, but I would say I would um, I would elaborate on that a little more. So I, I call it data narrative. Um, so I'm almost combining two concepts, which is both the use of data and the power of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You're talking about insights from data, the insights, are so compelling when you can tell it as your story. It's the story of compliance. It's the story of your culture. It's the story of how people are behaving in your organization. I find myself at a loss about how to describe David because he can do so many things. He like defies a simple label. He can do analytics he can do programming, he can do visualization, he can do graphic design. I I don't know how to call him. So when I'm introducing him, I often say, he's the guy who can use big data or small data to help you tell a story. And that's what he used to do um, as a data journalist, which is taking lots of data and make compelling news stories out of them. And I have just you know, been thrilled to work with him and to see what he's able to do with organizations and their data and transform things from a data dump or a simple sort of dashboard to something that's much more compelling, imaginative, and resonates with the audience to whom these data are presented. Because oftentimes what we see is precisely, you know, something like a data dump or something like a dashboard with a lot of numbers, but a lot of those require more interpretation. What we want to do is to combine that concept of using data to get insights and then be able to share those insights in a way that's compelling and that's stories.
0: Absolutely. If you don't actually make sense of that data, not just in the the voiceover and the actual analysis, but in the way in which you're actually presenting it um, with a visual story with that data, you're missing a huge opportunity. All right. So my next one is from our discussion with Marian Curander. And for folks, just as a reminder uh, of that episode, so Marriott was on this 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 task force, this 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 group that was tasked with modernizing the United States Congress. And so that episode was all about how to build consensus and achieve results in a divided organization. And I think there were a lot of things to be learned from that episode. One of the things that I really loved is, um, the importance of physical space and its impact on, on culture and in driving social norms and in impacting people's behaviors. Uh, the, the specific example that she gave us was just the difference that it made when they chose to actually sit around a table uh, rather than sitting in a traditional committee setting and how they chose to intersperse Democrats with Republicans so that folks were always sitting with someone who um they might not be politically aligned with. So just like the dynamic of that was really powerful. But what I wanted to highlight from our conversation with her is a better way um, was the importance of consulting with the people who your work is going to impact. And we talk about this a lot in the compliance space and the culture space and the DEI space, um, where oftentimes oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes decisions are made by well-meaning people in a vacuum or by well-meaning people in a conference room um, without going out into the field and collecting insights from folks, without talking to the quote-unquote user or consumer. And so she said the following, which I really loved, Uh, given our mission with focusing on the internal workings of Congress, we also did things like, let's talk to the people who actually work here. So over the course of four years, we were uh, in existence, we held regular brown bag meetings and listening sessions for staff. Um, many of the things the staff shared with us were these very simple things like, quote, it drives me crazy how this switchboard cannot transfer calls. Uh, and so we would just dig into things like that. They were these little things, but these little things that drove people crazy. And it's just one such a reminder that, especially in the cultural context, um, it's not always grand gestures. Uh, Uh, or, or massive shifts or movements. Sometimes there are just these little things, these simple things that can make a world of difference to people. And then I think the other takeaway there is we won't know what those things are if we're sitting in a conference room or in a vacuum trying to figure out what people need when all we really need to do is ask them. Just ask them. And I think that applies in the compliance space as much as it applies in any other space. Let's actually put the human being at the center of our analysis
1: so true when i was my first compliance job uh, one you know one of my tasks at one point was to draft a set of policies and procedures uh, that would govern our sponsorship of the events so i sat there and imagined what sponsoring an event was like, um, who would do it, what, you know, what they would be doing. And I drafted what I thought was quite a terrific policy. Um, so then I had the idea that hmm, maybe I should ask the people who actually do the events. Um, so I was really glad I did, because I think within the first 20 minutes, they shredded my policy and mm-hmm. procedures. Um, they asked me questions that I could not answer. Um, they told me about things that I never thought about. And uh, that was such a learning experience for me that in fact, that was one of the reasons behind one of the questions that that I had put into the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program document at DOJ was whom did you consult with when you drafted the policies and procedures? Because that experience was so impactful. Um, and and I think it also underscores something that we've also talked about on on uh, some of our podcast episodes is the importance of listening. That listening is, I think, one of the most underused tools in the in the compliance officer's toolbox. We are too busy talking and preaching and messaging out, and we're not doing enough of just listening to people. Mm. I'm going to pick up uh, again and sort of d- do an expansion of what you said uh, from Dr. Curander's episode, but also from uh, the episodes that we had with Katie Chu and uh, uh, Antoine Ferrer and uh, also, uh, of course, our colleagues, um, Caitlin and Natish, and that's about culture. So that is a big topic of course and we are of the belief here in the lab that culture really is at the root of everything. This culture to, you know, to to quote uh Allison is the way we do things around here. The importance of understanding how culture plays a role, how culture may be different in different parts of your organization due to functionality, due to the people involved, due to geography. um, How do you navigate these different cultures? How do you listen to these different cultures so that you can understand your messaging impacts? Um, Your attempts to influence behavior cannot be successful unless you understand culture. So the, the importance of culture Not just in terms of, you know, saying that it's important, but really making an effort to understand how it's working, what are its its dynamics in your organization. That's just something that hits home to me every time we take on a project.
0: I fully agree. And I, I think that with the discussion of culture, we can also tie it back to the discussion that we had at the outset, which was around the concept of complexity, because culture is the ultimate poster child for complexity. And yet what often happens, and we see this all the time, is that culture gets reduced to something that it isn't in an effort to um, shirk or sort of like out of fear for the complexity that exists within culture. And the thing that we often see said is that culture winds up getting reduced to something like tone from the top. And while tone from the top may very well be part of culture, culture is so much more than that. And we do it a disservice when we try to reduce it to something um, that's catchy, which is exactly where we started. All right. So my third uh, better way or takeaway or top moment was the conversation that we had with Professor Sunil Betty and Todd Ha about a recent research project that they had done on conjoint analysis in the context of compliance. Uh, Just as a reminder for folks, the the research that they did was intended to um, assess whether or not a commitment to compliance or investments in compliance had any impact on consumer behaviors. So taking an analysis that typically would be done, you know, in the marketing context or in the business context to see which product features were most appealing to uh, a, a consumer and to have compliance be one of those product features, and I thought what we got from this was, uh, you know, highlighting of the better ways of measurement and of curiosity and of taking a scientific approach to uh, these, you know, interesting uh, elements of compliance that we're we're dealing with uh, day in and day out. And and what we learned about was that the results of their research actually gave us some reason to believe that people do care about compliance and that it actually might have commercial value to a business in ways that can flip the script on the sometimes misperception of compliance as just a cost center.
1: I really appreciated uh, their, their research. And I think it goes to, like you said, our really fascination with people who do empirical research on some of the assumptions that have so long been bantered about uh, in the compliance world. I think we, as a discipline, have made a lot of assumptions, but have really not begun to test a lot of those assumptions. And we really are interested in approaching things like scientists or try to put on that scientific mindset and thinking through about how do we test some of the assumptions that we have held and do they really work? So so in that vein, I, I would say that would be my, my, my next uh, better way which is this entire mindset of pursuing empirical verification of some of the practices that the compliance industries um, have held dear. Um, so a couple of other professors, in addition to uh, Todd and Sunil, uh, Benjamin van ben Daniel Beunza, um, they have all done empirical research uh, into different aspects of human organizational behavior that are very relevant to the to the work we do. Um, Benjamin uh, had done this experiment, right? So where uh, he tested the length of policy and how it impacts people's understanding of those policies, that really, you know, was very enlightening uh in terms of finding out that whether you have a long policy or a short policy, it really didn't matter that much, at least in, in the type of anti-bribery and corruption policy that they tested. Now, I really would be interested to test this on other types of policies, for example, because I think anti bribery and behavior um, and, and corruption rests in an area that is more common-sensible. I mean, if you just go ask most people who are not trained in compliance, you know, is bribery good or bad? um, Most people would tell you that they don't think it's good. Um, But if you were testing them in a particularly uh, specific area like money laundering or um, trade sanctions, that actually does require more than common sense knowledge and that might be an interesting empirical study to run. So Daniel Beunza told us about the ethnographic methods, which is fascinating to me. And 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 I, in my LinkedIn post for that, I publicly admitted to which is not the first time I publicly admitted to you know my my like liking for the show Undercover Boss, um, minus the bad wigs that they often make people wear. I I still hope one day i um, I'm going to work on this. To get someone from that show to be on our podcast, it, it's such an interesting idea that you 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 plant yourself among the people that you are hoping to understand, and you observe, and yeah. it's it's such an underutilized method in compliance work. So again, these various methodologies that are tried and true in many academic disciplines have yet to be fully utilized in the compliance field. And we're seeing some, as we have heard from our podcast guests, and we hope to see more.
0: There are two things uh, that I take away from from those examples. One of which is that w- with Benjamin Van Roy and his, his co-researchers' work, we didn't just get that, well, maybe these different versions of a policy don't Don't make a difference. What we actually got ties back to the culture point and the importance of context, which is that maybe these policies didn't make a difference, but what seems to make a difference is social norms, is the impact of what you see your peers or those around you doing and how that impacts the decisions that you make. I, I say that, one, because I think it's fascinating and it's important and it's so consistent with so many of the other themes that we've talked about here. But also, I think that the compliance professionals out there, have, in my experience, many of them have heard about that research and thought, uh-oh, Like if that's the case, <laughs> what does that mean for us? And I think that it 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 means wonderful things for us as a profession. It means that... the the tools that we have to use and the ways we have to go about this are just going to be different and more sophisticated. Um, And that we we sort of now have some empirical evidence. We have some evidence that, you know, that piece of paper itself isn't the end all be all of compliance. Um, So that was one of the takeaways, um, the importance of context that we get from that research. The other one is, I don't want the academic world to be the only place where this research is happening. Why can't this be happening within organizations? Why can't this be part of how a company runs its compliance program? It doesn't have to be massive scale, but by doing some actual research to see whether or not the tools that they're implementing, the the tactics that they're deploying uh, are actually working in practice. And what I think is so interesting about this conversation and how little of this is actually happening is that there's so many of these companies whose business relies on that kind of research, whether you're a a, a pharmaceutical or a med device or another company in the life sciences space, that's like foundation is clinical research. Um, Or if you are a tech company that's out there creating products that you want people to ultimately buy, why, why don't we see enough of this, um, uh, thing that drives the business in compliance. I think one of the obvious is cost uh, and skill sets, but I actually don't think this has to be expensive. And I actually don't think it requires much more than curiosity um, and commitment uh, in terms of skill sets. So uh, that's my plug. I want to see more of this happening within companies.
1: Well, you're kind of doing it, Zach, because I, I know you have led several uh, training sessions for companies on a topic called "Thinking Like a Scientist," Good. and um, you know, to maybe maybe it'll be interesting for you to share a little bit of what that that training is like, because you know, this this is this is a topic that certainly is gaining some interest among the people we work with.
0: Well, what we what we often do in our trainings, and, and certainly in this one, is we start. By having a conversation about thinking like a scientist and its value but we talk about it completely outside the context of compliance so just the value of thinking like a scientist more generally what it looks like what are the the qualities of of thinking like a scientist um and we often you know pull from adam grant Uh, in, in his focus and in, in, in his book, think again, on, um, you know, putting humility over pride and curiosity over conviction. I love that quote from him um, and how that can guide the way that we develop a compliance program and evaluate and assess a compliance program. The way that we really kind of frame it is that it's all about, you know, being curious and um, collecting data, but also how, it's not just enough to be a data-driven exercise. It's got to also be a human-centered one. And how we can marry those things together to really think like a scientist and ultimately just build a modern compliance program. It's a tremendous amount of fun to do to do that session. We've done it together. I also love to do it with Caitlin Handron on our team, who's actually a scientist, uh, which makes it all the more all the more authentic. My fourth is. Something that we heard from the incredibly talented, very thoughtful, and lovely Julia Ormond in our discussion with her about ESG disclosures and her work as an activist. And I want to share a quote from her that I just that really resonated with me. She said, Somebody described it from the corporate side as it sometimes feels as if what activists are saying is that water is wet. We identify water because it's wet. And it's like, well, that's also oil. That's also blood. That's also sweat and tears. And she continues and says, but from a scientific point of view, water is H2O. So for me, the measurement is critical because it gets us away from emotional biases and presumptions that on some level are really useless. Part of the reason that this really uh, resonated with me is that, you know, in some ways, in some ways, whether we're talking about our work in the culture space or compliance or DEI, there's this element when we've been in-house in these roles that there almost is this feeling of we we're kind of like activists within this little organization. You know, we 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 want to promote compliance, we want to promote diversity, we want to promote inclusion, we want to promote a culture that's gonna support both the risk management and performance and all of these things. But What I found is that when we lead in these cases with the emotional argument, with the softer argument, with the water is wet argument, rather than with the scientific uh, point of view and with the measurement point of view, we we lose people Uh, or we just simply don't make our point as effectively as we could. And I feel like this ties into so much of what we've talked about today, which is, the power of thinking like a scientist and measurement and data to drive heft to the messages that we're putting out there.
1: Amen to that. I I really appreciated Julia's um, discussion with us because you know she she really was the first one that brings an activist point of view to our podcast, and it is an important point of view for people to understand because. When someone chooses to be an activist is because they're passionate about something. In this case, that is not directly relevant to them, right? So it's it's not like Julia herself has experienced uh, human slavery, um, but it's because she has this level of empathy and she understands that at the end of the day, everything is connected to humans because we are all humans. And that fundamental recognition of basically our collective humanness um, is also something, by the way, that that Allison talked about, right? Because the way she thinks about how corporations can really appropriately exercise their influence is to look at their impact on humans. And our lab is very big on being human-centered. We think about the human beings that are at the center of the policies and processes and training and programs that we build, all of those things, because ultimately that's what it's all about. All right. So my final uh, is precision. Mm. So precision is a concept that is so important in the work that we do. One of my, All time, most popular LinkedIn post was from the time when I was still at DOJ. I published an article on LinkedIn called Precision Matters. There there was sort of so much interest in in that. And I got, you know, messages from law school professors that say they're going to make that required reading uh, for their students, because I think there's just so much imprecision in our space and we oftentimes hear people make statements that are not necessarily backed up by evidence or data uh statements that are just incredibly vague um i constantly read policies that are not precise and are are not clear on what they're referring to and what they're prohibiting or allowing um but more importantly you know this is a point that our guests uh, from our colleague, David Yanofsky to Shannon, to Roman, um, have all harped on is the importance of the precision in using words, in using data, in understanding concepts. Um, I think one of my developing pet peeves now is the people's overuse of the word or the term AI. When people say AI today, most of the time, what they mean is technology. Yeah. And but it's, you know, as as some of these guests um, have have, uh, articulated, it's so important to understand what you're talking about, because it affects how you regulate it, how you use it, what the limitations are when you're talking about AI generally, you know, how can my compliance program use AI? Well, that really needs a lot more sort of dissection to understand what you're looking for, what exactly is the function that you're trying to advance technologically. And oftentimes, and I'll say way more often than not, it's not AI, it's something else. Uh, it could be an algorithm. It could simply be machine learning, but it's not just your generic AI. And But that applies all across the, the board from, from you know, the words we use to the evidence that we cite. It's just something that I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that we be precise in the things we do and the things we say.
0: Yeah, this actually ties in really well with my final one. And that is, I think that precision often comes with expertise. Your ability to be precise is often driven by the expertise that you have in a particular area. And um, my my final takeaway was actually pulled from the discussion that we had with Benjamin Van Roy, um, who, when talking about his book, shared how the most important behavioral code that we have, the legal code has actually been written by lawyers who are behavioral novices. And that leads me to a better way that is so deeply connected to our work in our lab, which is let's have a multidisciplinary team of experts So if we're going to talk about behavior, if we're going to talk about culture, let's have a behavioral scientist. Let's have a cultural psychologist who's there and involved. If we're going to talk about AI and its impact, either from a legal perspective or otherwise, let's have people like Ruman. Our ability to be precise is connected to us opening ourselves up to a broader group of people who can contribute their experience and their expertise to help us understand how all of these various things piece together. There's a role for the lawyer. There's a role for the traditional compliance personnel. There's a role for the auditor, but there's also a role for the AI expert and the behavioral scientist and the cultural psychologist and the data journalist and the professional writer. Uh, It's when we bring all of these minds together, which are all archetypes that exist within our lab, that just really wonderful, magical things happen. And we inherently become more precise as a result
1: it's been so much fun working with our team because of all the different expertise and perspectives they bring. I mean, I feel like every time we just have a team meeting, I learn a ton of new things. Uh, In our remaining minutes, give a sense of what's to come for uh, next year. Uh, We're going to have guests to talk about environmental crime. We're going to have An expert talk about whistleblowing uh we're also going to have some sort of more conversations about culture the concept of the the right thing to do what else
0: we're gonna have a law school professor who teaches uh compliance to aspiring lawyers and future compliance professionals uh, and uh, specifically through a clinic which is going to be really really exciting to hear how the next generation of compliance professionals are being taught uh, there's just so much great stuff in in the hopper and um, we are on the hunt for other better ways and other interesting you know guests so anyone who's listening if you have ideas share them um, if you have, potential guests that you'd like to connect us to. If you know someone who has been on or who works on Undercover Boss, uh, definitely make that connection for Huey. Uh, And Huey, before we break for the year, I just want to ask you one more question. Um, I love our Proust questionnaire, our Better Way questionnaire. So I thought, well, what from the questionnaire takeaways did I get from the year? So one of my takeaways was I think lots of people wish they could sing. Um, lots of people end their emails with best, comma, and all of them think that they're unique, and yet they're not, because <laughs> that was by far <laughs> the most popular choice. What about you? Any Any takeaways on that?
1: I would say I'm always interested to find out people's outside interests. You know, there are the people who are, you know, hikers and hunters and um, sailboat race, racers, um, professional writers, I, I find their their outside interest always gives me a whole extra dimension of looking at them because oftentimes when you interact with them is in that professional capacity and you're interested in this particular aspect of this person. But what I appreciate about that first questionnaire is when, when people come in focus, not only in their outside interests, but the importance of their hobbies and their families, uh, those come through. And they, they, to me, really fill in a whole extra dimension and makes this person just so much, you know, uh, so much more of a human being uh, than you would otherwise have known.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's why we do it. Uh, We approach our work with a human centered point of view and we've approached the ways in which we put this podcast together in the same way. It has absolutely been an incredible year. Thank you so much. We'll be back in 2024. We can't wait.
1: And we wish you all a happy holiday and happy new year.
0: Happy new year. Thank you all for tuning in to the better way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.